Someone posted uh, in my Facebook yesterday, here's what they posted. You should be as excited about church as about the Super Bowl. So when your pastor makes a point this Sunday, pour Gatorade over his head. You know what? Take that one up with Jackie. I'm not sure she will. <laughs> I don't mind it. I don't mind it. But you got to deal with Jackie back there. <laughs> I have to be honest with you, though, after today's message, I'm not sure you're going to want to pour Gatorade over my head. It will be a really, it's going to be exciting today. So before we begin, I want to begin with a story. I'm ashamed to say it, but there's a time in my life when I had identified very strongly with the actor Tom Cruise. My sister said I used, he looked like me. Not the other way around. They said he looked like me. So naturally, I was curious every time a new Tom Cruise movie came out. In the mid-90s, he decided to do a remake of the old Mission Impossible TV series, so he made a group of movies called Mission Impossible. I saw the first one. It was pretty good. So in 2000, he came out with Mission Impossible 2. And when Mission Impossible 2 came out, I went to see it. I thought it was cool, extremely far-fetched, but... It was entertaining, and today I mention this not because, not because I want you to go watch it, but, but because I think the storyline is very intriguing. Actually, I believe, as you will see, it's rather biblical. So I'm going to use this storyline to help us understand Luke 17 before we go into it. So hopefully most, have any of you ever watched movies before, a movie? Most of you have. I read a book that said the people that you preach to are professionals at understanding movies because at stories because they watch five to ten, sometimes a day, but at least a week. So here's the storyline. It starts off with a man who just wanted to get rich. He was a biochemist. He wanted money. He wanted a lot of money. He ran a biotech firm, and so in his mind, he said, how can I make money? I know. I am going to invent a virus, a deadly virus. So he invents this deadly virus called Chimera. This virus is so bad, if you catch the virus, you die within two days. Basically, it destroys your red blood cells, and it can go airborne. If it goes airborne, everybody starts catching it like the flu, and if you catch it, you have two days to live. It's a deadly virus. Now, the reason why he invented this is so he can invent an anecdote to the chimera virus that he's going to sell to governments to become a billionaire. That's his plan. And sure enough, he invents the virus and he invents the antidote. But it gets out, and this evil villain finds out about it. And this villain doesn't just want money. He wants power. He wants this man's business. He really wants to take over, just have influence over the world. So what he does is the first thing he does is he kills the man, gets the virus, and gets the antidote. But in, during his struggle to get the virus, it infects his ex-girlfriend. Gets her, she is infected with the virus. So it's in her bloodstream. She has two days to live. And because he's like a villain, he sends her out into, just, yeah, out into the city of Sydney, Australia to infect the rest of people because if she infects the rest of people, they'll get the virus. If they get the virus, they'll need the antidote, and then he'll sell it 
for billions of dollars. So that's the thing. But of course, you have the guy that looks like me, the hero. The hero comes along, and the hero happens to love her. That's just a sideline. He happens to love her, and he knows by saving her, he'll save the world. So the first thing he does is he has to kill the villain. So he knocks off the villain, grabs the chimera virus, kills, destroys that, gets the antidote, gives it to her, and he saves the world. That's the storyline. Not, not, not too hard. So it's a virus that needs to be destroyed, gets the antidote, saves the girl, and saves the world. That's the story. No, I didn't. That's the storyline. What I skip? No, no, no. This is the plot, Boyd. That's a plot. Very simple. And I'm using this as a platform for Luke 17. So let's go to Luke 17, and you will see. Because Luke 17 is just like this. Boyd, you and I should have kind of like a talk show where I, I sit up here and you're there, and you and I banter kind of back. And Can you play the guitar or anything? No, then it wouldn't work. Okay, so Luke 17. Luke 17. Let's just read the first four verses, and you'll understand where I'm going with this. Luke 17. And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. That's the title of my message is Woe to the One. Woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That's, that's where we'll begin, and we're going to walk through this slowly, and you'll see how it's a lot like the plot line of Mission Impossible 2. So, to begin, what is the virus? Sin. Sin is deadly. Sin is real. And sin is something we have to contend with every single day. Because temptations, as Jesus says, temptations to sin will abound. This phrase, temptations to sin, some uh, versions render it things that cause people to stumble. Other versions say offenses against God. The author's idea behind temptations to sin is that there are traps that are laid all over to catch you and to hook you and to drag you down. And so the phraseology is temptations to sin. The word sin means to miss the mark intentionally means to step over God's line. It means to wander off his path. The word temptation are those things that seduce us to miss the mark, to step over the line, to wander off the path. Temptations can be in the form of a friend who invites you to enter into a night of foolish debauchery, to join them at the bar, to smoke a bowl of weed, to cheat on your wife. Temptations can come in the form of advertising online that pop up and prompt you to click on the adult website where you can find plenty of filth. Temptations can even be that neighbor that makes you so angry because they keep letting their dog in your backyard to whiz. Temptations are those things 
that draw you in to sin. Traps, enticements, lures. But Jesus also gives us the bad news. He said, temptations to sin, and then he says, are sure to come. This is the bad news. The sin virus has gone airborne. It's gone airborne. You can't get away from it. They are sure to come. Every day, you will be exposed to people in situations that will seduce you and that will encourage you to make choices that offend God. Temptations all around us, and you can't escape it. Scripture said there's two reasons why it's gone airborne. Number one, it's just natural. Sin, or the temptations to sin, are a natural part of life. Ever since Adam fell in the garden, the first temptation to eat the fruit, it has been hardwired into the world system. Movies, TVs, internet, the break room, the bar, the beach, the ball game, your buddies, your living room, and at times even a church is slanted. It's slanted. The world is tilted, and it's tilted in the direction of satisfying your selfish wants, desires, pleasures, and not God's. It's tilted to sin. Everywhere you go, everyone you meet has been tainted with the virus. Isaiah 59, 9 and 10 says, We hope for light, behold, only darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. That's the first reason, because it's hardwired into our system. It's natural. Second reason why temptations to sin are a daily occurrence is because God has a nemesis. God has an enemy. He loves to cause chaos. We call him Satan, the adversary. He is daily tempting all of us with enticing delights. He says to us, you can be, you can do, you can have anything you want, anytime you want, in any way you want it. That is his main shtick. That's his main line. You deserve it. Go ahead. Take it. That's his master lie. And even though it is usually wrong, to us it sounds so right. You're right. I do deserve it. I should have it. I can have it. I must have it. Job 1.8, Satan says, he goes to and fro, walking around the earth, walking up and down on it for the purpose of devouring and destroying the apple of God's eye, which is you. He's after you. Satan is in the people business. That's his job. And his job is to watch and learn about each one of us. He watches closely, and he takes notes on you. He knows you. He knows the exact points where we are vulnerable, and he uses this information against us to try to get us to sin and deny Christ. I once heard this story. It's a sad story. It's about a boss who had a very attractive secretary working for him. And he would daily ask her out on a date. She said she was married, but it still didn't stop the boss. He was attracted to her. One day he offered her some money to be intimate with him. I will give you $100. She said, no way. How about $1,000? She said, no. What if I made it $10,000? 
She said, I'd have to think about that. Later on, she came over and she said, okay, okay. He then winked at her and said, thanks. All I really wanted to know is if you could be bought. And now I know you can be. I will remember that for later. Satan is studying you to see where he can buy you. What temptation works on you? Is it pride? Is it greed? Is it anger? Is it lust? Whatever the price is, he can pay it. And so what you have to ask yourself is, can you be bought? Can you be bought? This is where Jesus comes into the part of warning. What he's going to say is playing with sin is deadly. It's a deadly game. Listen to what he says next. He says, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Woe means a curse on you. Do not allow yourself to become a carrier of the sin virus, Jesus is warning Because you will become an open door that will begin spreading the disease to others. And Jesus wants you to know, if you start spreading it, it would have been better for you to have died. So don't let this be you. It's a terrifying phrase, a millstone tied around his neck. A millstone is a big rock used to basically grind grain. But Jesus is saying, imagine if it was tied in a knot, tugging on your neck, pulling you down to the bottom of a sea. And what he says is that's what the sinner deserves. That's what the sinner deserves. Why would he say this? I mean, that's kind of gruesome. That's grisly. Why would he say this? Because sin is treacherous and he knows it. The millstone warning, you can also uh, correlate it to Matthew when he's talking about little children are surrounding him and he looks to his disciples and he warns them. He says, never introduce one of these children to a lifestyle of sin. So when he says this millstone, is he just applying it to people who seduce children? Or maybe maybe he's talking about don't influence new believers or maybe the vulnerable. Don't cause them to sin. I personally think it can mean all three. He's saying, woe, curse on you if you cause a vulnerable person to become caught in sin. I even think this same warning needs to be generally applied regardless of if it's a child or an adult. Do not be a carrier of sin, period. Do not spread it, do not promote it, do not laugh at it, do not encourage it, do not ignore it, do not treat it as normal, and most importantly, do not be someone that introduces sin into somebody else's life. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Is Jesus joking? Why why would he say this? Because he's warning us it's not a game. Sin is a viper with poisonous fangs that will bite you. 
A couple of days ago, I read this statement by Ignatius of Loyola. He said, give me a child until he is seven, and I will show you the man. Give me a child until he is seven, and I will show you the man. In other words, if a child grows up in a good home where godly standards exist, he or she will learn to acquire the tools to become a well-adjusted adult. But if that same child sees or experiences abuse, perversion, and is lied to on a regular basis early in his or her life, the adult years for that person, I can assure you, will be full of trouble and sorrow. Bitterness, pain, darkness, and grief. And as a pastor, I have seen the truth of this over and over and over again. That's why Jesus says, woe to the one. But I'll tell you what, the world, and more and more a growing portion of the church, does not take these warnings of Jesus seriously. They just don't. In fact, the general attitude with sin these days is to treat it like you would a packet of hot sauce on your taco. It ain't so bad. A small splash of sin here, a touch of sin there, adds spice to life. Sow your wild oats, experiment, hey, you only live once. And as they say, if it doesn't kill you, it just makes you stronger. Boy, this sounds so innocent, this lie. But it never proves true, ever. In fact, this lie is a trap door that it goes straight to hell. I'll explain why. Why is it bad to be a carrier of the sin virus? Because when sin enters your life, it doesn't just stop at you. It spreads. It spreads. And when it spreads, it ruins everything it touched. The Bible describes sin in three ways. It says sin, it, it pollutes. It's like dirt. It pollutes. It takes clean things and makes them unclean. That's why the Levites always had to wash their hands before they offered sacrifices. They've touched the world, and the world is tainted, and they got to clean. Pollutes things. It's like having dog poop on your shoe. Everywhere you walk, it stinks. Second thing about sin is it ruins what was intended to be good. It destroys the good. The illustration of this is leprosy. Leprosy is a wasting disease. It soars on a healthy body that spread and caused you to become disfigured. Sin disfigures good. And then the worst problem of all is it inflates the bad. It's like yeast that just keeps making the bad worse and worse. That's why you can't let it in. Think about your own life. When has sin ever made life better for you? When? It makes it complex, confusing. I have been reading this book about sin called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, and it describes sin very detailed fashion. One major point about sin is that it's relentless never stops. It's never satisfied. And if it's not stopped, it turns things bigger. Small lies that are intended to fool others, if not stopped, can begin to grow and they will eventually bite you back where you begin to believe your own lies. That's the problem with sociopaths. 
Judgment of others leads to feelings of superiority. I'm better. And when they're adopted, like into your heart, first they start affecting your family, where your family's better, or then your group's better, or then your race is better, or then your country's better, and ultimately it leads to wars. When sin enters opportunities to wrongfully get your way, to steal, to lie, to cheat, leads to injustice, which then causes a, a sick society who's lying to each other and cheating each other to start crafting unbalanced laws that are only benefiting a few. It, it grows, and it grows not just to the person, but to the system, to the understructures. Lust turns into strong desire, and then sick, sexual addiction steps in and perverts the appetite, and it takes your natural longings and turns them unnatural. And covetousness over time turns into envy. I was reading about envy, and I, I think this is the particular sin that has seeped into our culture. Social media, I think, is fueling it. We want to keep up with others. And as you're sitting in your room quietly in your home and looking online, you see other people smiling, going on vacation, the one you want to take, eating the meal you wanted to cook. And it's creating in the minds of people, what I'd say this juvenile, it's juvenile, culture of competition, comparison, and then coveting. It's juvenile, it's silly. But if, if you don't nip coveting in the bud, it turns into envy. And the writer said, here's what envy is. An envious person is the person who doesn't just want what you have. But if they can't get it, they don't want you to have it either. It is, if an envious person cannot have heaven, he will raise hell in the lives of others. This is what's happening politically on both sides. I am convinced that even our society's gender confusion begins with people envying the life of the other gender. Men wish they were women, which turns into strange belief that maybe that's what I was supposed to be in the first place. It's kind of messed up. Does someone have something you want? Have you ever hated them for it? Hated them for it? Have you ever wished they lost it? Sin won't stop. So you need to stop it. You need to apply the antidote to kill the virus in you. How do we do this? Let's keep reading. Jesus says, in verse 3, begins by saying, pay attention to yourselves. That means inside the church, but begin with you. Stopping sin begins in your own heart. Be honest. And ask yourself, is there sin in my life? You have to ask and be honest. God can see everything you do. You're not hiding. You can start very simply. Ask yourself, what makes you angry? Why are you angry? A lot of people are just angry these days. Why? Is it covetousness? Is it because people have offended you? What, what makes you angry? Are you wanting something and can't have it? That's what James asks. Do you lust? Are you keeping a secret that offends God? What he is going to say here is the first thing you need to do is repent. Turn from it. Ask God to forgive you. That's the antidote. The antidote is forgiveness from God. It stops the virus. kills it. 
dead. But then you've got to keep going. Look at what it says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. So the second thing you need to do is not just evaluate yourself. Then you need to, and this is hard, confront your brother when you see him or her sinning. That means be honest. Tell the truth. That is the small version of the Matthew 18 principle. The Matthew 18 principle says, if I see my brother in sin, I go to them. If they don't listen, I take another. If they don't listen, I take the church. It's also the Galatians 6.1 principle. You who are spiritual, confront your brother who's sinning. But watch out so you don't fall into the same trap. Sin is that bad. So we must confront it when we see it. However, the secular value of tolerance doesn't like this. They believe any confrontation is judgment. Don't judge me. How dare you judge me? That's not judgment. That is what I will call godly observation and correction. Let me give you an example. There's a woman I knew whose husband would come home drunk. He'd basically work hard, go out to the bar with his friends, come home late at night. He was drunk at night, and in the morning he would be grumpy. And she says, the reason you're grumpy is because you have a hangover and you get drunk at night. And what he would say to her is, don't judge me. Don't judge me. That's not judgment. That's an observation of what's happening. When a man sleeps with a woman that isn't his wife, recognizing that isn't judgment, it's an observation. When a man sleeps with a Another man? That's not judgment. That's an observation. When did pointing out clear observations become wrong? When did, when did correction become the sin? Calling sin, sin has become the new sin. As Isaiah 5 says, evil is now considered good and good is now evil. But sin is still sin. It's still a virus. It still destroys. It still ruins. So we have to confront it. So then the next question, what happens if the sin has been done against you? And you point out, this is what it says. And if he sins against you, well, let's pay attention, verse 3, to yourself. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is the hardest part. How do you apply the antidote to others? Forgive when they repent. Forgive them. Let it go. Let it go. What if they keep doing the same thing against me? Forgive them. Why? It just seems unfair. Because you need to look closely at the antidote. What is that antidote made of? Well, it contains the blood that was already shed for you. You have been forgiven of everything. Everything. If you are a Christian, an eternity of punishment and separation from God has been paid for. How can you not forgive relatively? I'm talking about relatively in comparison to what you've already received how can you not forgive trivial things of other people? Timothy Keller says this about forgiveness. Listen, this is amazing. When you choose not to forgive, you remain trapped in your anger. 
you are allowing that person to still have control over you. Forgiveness, however, is allowing God to set you free. I see forgiveness as the freedom to finally be able to forget, to stop remembering. And I think remembering is what's weighing all of us down. Let me illustrate. When we don't forgive, so let's say Boyd offended me by speaking while I'm preaching. It offends me. He did it to me a couple weeks ago. See, he's offending me again. So what I do is I take this ledger. It's invisible, but it's a big book, and on it's right, Boyd Kaler. And I open it up, my right date, February 5th, first service. He offended me again. And I close that book, and I carry it around with me. So every time he offends me, you did, look, you did that. So I'm carrying this book around. Then Ken offends me. He always disagrees with me in staff meetings. I got another book, and Jim offends me. He gives me a book, and I didn't finish reading it. He's like, have you read that book yet? How, can't you have patience? So I've got all of these books on all of you, and I carry around with me everywhere, and they get heavy, and I get bitter, and I'm trying to remember, how did Jerry, you offended me. The, I, I got to get out your ledger. You remember? And it's so heavy. We do that with so many people. Forgetting, forgiving allows you to take all of those books, throw them over there, and light a match, and oh, set free. I'll have to carry them around. Boy, you can keep talking. I don't care. It's freeing. Forgiveness burns the ledger, wipes clean the memories, and you don't have to carry around grievances anymore. That's freedom. Most of you are weary because you're carrying around huge books on people. You offended me five years ago. I invited you over to my house. You didn't want to come. You went to your sisters instead. How could you? How do you remember that? Man, I remember some one person was mad at me for 10 years because I was stopped at a stop sign. I didn't wave to them. I'm not going to that church. The pastor's cold and different. He didn't even wave to me. How, 10 years carrying that in your ledger? Why? They, they had no idea I was hitting my kid in the back seat. I'm kidding. I wasn't hitting. I wasn't. And now you're going to be offended at that. The pastor who beats his kids. Stop carrying the ledger. It's killing us. But for many, many of you, this forgiveness idea, it's easier said than done. You want to, The next passage, if you look in your Bible, starting in verse 5 and even 7, these are often taken as kind of like just tidbits. They don't really belong anywhere. But if you look at them in context of forgiveness, they're pretty powerful. You'll see what I, I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 5 and 6. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Normally we say, if you have enough faith, you can do anything. What this to me means in context of forgiveness is a lot of us have bitter roots in our lives. We have bitterness. They're like roots of a tree that stick in the ground. Hebrews 12.15 says, Do not let any root of bitterness spring up and cause you trouble with one another. Be at peace. Forgiveness is the only road to peace, but many of us are like, I can't, I cannot dig underneath the, I, I want to be bitter. It's like roots of a tree. Jesus saying, if you trust me, if 
trust me, have faith, forgive. So there's some of you thinking, even when people keep hurting me, I have to keep forgiving? Keller addresses this point. He says, even though we must forgive, we must confront sin, wrongdoing. We need to wake people up to their real character, sometimes help them repair broken relationships, sometimes protect others from their sin. But when we confront, we confront for one reason. We confront for one reason, love. We never confront people to be repaid. They don't owe us anything because God set us free. We never confront to hope they hurt like I hurt. Jesus already hurt for you. Well, some of you might say, but what if after I confront the sin and they ask for forgiveness, but deep in my heart, I don't believe them? How can I forgive? That's where 7, verses 7 through 10 come in. Listen to what he says. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare my supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And after your words, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Why should you forgive? Because it's your duty. It's your duty. You're a Christian. You've been forgiven. I don't forgive because I'm magnanimous and I'm an incredible person. I forgive because I'm a servant of Christ. It's my duty. It's your duty because life isn't about you and your hurts. It's about him and giving other people a chance to know him. I'll tell you, honestly, forgiveness is hard. It hurts. Final quote from Keller, he said, Everyone who forgives great evil goes through a death into resurrection. And experiences nails, blood, sweat, and tears. Forgiveness is the one action we can do that is most like Christ. One of the most stunning statements I think Jesus ever made is he's being destroyed by wicked men. He was spit on, he was humiliated, he was laughed at, and he looks up and he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. And when we forgive like that, we are most like him. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he even forgive when he has all the power? Why would he die at the hands of wicked men? Because he knows it's only patience and kindness that leads people to repentance. When we hold back anger, wrath, and judgment, it gives people a chance to think and to say, man, I'm sorry. Forgive me. It's hard to bite your tongue. It's hard to wait. It's easy to be angry and forceful. But when you bite your tongue and when you wait, it gives a person a chance to allow the Holy Spirit to change their heart. That's really what this is all about.